0: Two, one, zero, always in running. Lift off,
1: we have a lift off. Hello everyone, welcome to another Lab News podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Now, DNA sequencing, microbiome experimentation, and the trials and tribulations of various bits of scientific kit. Now all of that sounds like relatively standard fodder for a scientific podcast like this, but today's podcast really is something a little bit different.
0: You do give up working in the lab, but then you go to the space station, which is just this absolutely incredible lab. So I I feel like I haven't really left science. I just do it in a slightly different way now.
1: Yes, that was the voice of Dr. Kate Rubins, a real-life NASA astronaut who, back in 2009, was the first person to sequence DNA in space. Now, before she was quite literally aiming for the stars... Kate was a biologist. Uh, she has a PhD in cancer biology from Stanford University in the US. And she was a principal investigator at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research. Now, she is currently in training for a six month mission to the space station as a flight engineer. The mission will launch using the Russian Soyuz spacecraft from a Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And that's scheduled to launch in October 2020 but she was kind enough to interrupt that busy training schedule to talk with me, and what a fascinating conversation it was. Now, we spent most of the time talking about what it's actually like to do science in space. But of course, we also touch on the changing nature of America's space programme and what other the duties for to you as a flight engineer when you're careering around the planet in the world's fastest ever lab. So without further ado, here is the interview. And if I do sound a bit giddy at times, well, what can I tell you? It was a real life astronaut. Roger zero G and I feel fine. First of all, congratulations on your assignment to the next expedition, 6364. You must be excited.
0: Yes, I am really excited.
1: How I imagine this is that you go out to Kazakhstan quite early on to carry on your training. Are you there now?
0: Um, so I'm actually in Moscow. I'm at uh, Star City, which is the Cosmonaut Training Center, and we're finishing up our last part of Soyuz training here, and then we'll go down to Kazakhstan at the end of September for the October 14th launch.
1: Brilliant. So you're kind of really in the the final stages of the training for this this mission. Yeah.
0: So I've been uh, training since uh, December of last year, um, and it's been kind of an accelerated t- training flow. But a lot of it builds also on the training that I had for my 2016 mission.
1: And uh, and how do you like Star City?
0: It's lovely. It's it actually reminds me a lot of Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. It's um it's kind of a an academic campus, and it's really focused around cosmonaut training here, it's astronaut training in Houston, um, but the, uh, the engineers and the trainers actually work very closely together between Houston and Moscow. I've
1: always been so impressed at the uh, collaboration between Russia and the US on the space program because it, it feels like so many other forms of diplomacy can fail, but you know science and technology often overcomes all of that.
0: Yeah, and from the science and engineering perspective, we've always uh, worked really closely from Apollo-Soyuz test project on. uh, And we also have great international partners. Uh, You know, we partner with the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency. These are our main partners on the International Space Station, but then uh, countries all over the world send experiments. So they don't necessarily have to be a main partner agency to be able to launch an experiment to ISS.
1: Yeah it's great isn't it? It feels like if the world is to get on we should leave the politicians out of it and just let the scientists get on.
0: (laughs) Just send everybody to space they'll learn how to get along.
1: So for our publication and our podcast, a lot of our listeners are are scientists. So we will get on if if you don't mind to some of the science that you'll be doing. But before that, it would obviously be remiss of me not to ask some probably very cliched questions about sure. <laughs> life in space. So the first one is like, how did you end up there? Because you know you're a molecular biologist in your background. How how on earth did you end up in orbit?
0: Yeah, so I was a molecular biologist and really specifically focusing on virus immune interaction uh, and uh, pox viruses and filoviruses. And I was a fellow at the Whitehead Institute. I had a lab. Um, I was pretty intent on running a lab and being a faculty member for the rest of my life. Uh, But I had wanted to be an astronaut when I was a little kid. And it was actually one of my uh, co-PIs on a grant, one of my long-term collaborators who noticed astronaut applications online and said you know hey wouldn't this be funny to submit you you wanted to be an astronaut when you were a kid right and so i submitted the the application and, and went through the interview process and it turned out she was kind of mad afterwards because we couldn't collaborate on the grants anymore i had to i had to give up my grants to go to uh work at nasa but she's still a very dear friend uh to this day
1: yeah they can't hold that against you for becoming an astronaut <laughs> that's that's fair enough isn't it and i guess you, you've never looked back since
0: you know it's i it's one of these things that You do give up working in the lab uh, as a PI, but then you go to the space station, which is just this absolutely incredible lab, uh, and you get to do research for over 200 different experiments. So I, I feel like I haven't really left science, I just do it in a slightly different way now.
1: What what are the duties then? Like as an astronaut, as I think it's a flight engineer, isn't it? That you're officially called when you go up. What other duties yeah. aside from the experiments that we'll get onto in a minute? What other things do you find yourself in, involved with?
0: Yeah, well, so the interesting thing about space is is we do everything up there. And uh, when I started the training, you know, obviously there's a lot of, of training on the scientific background and the technical aspects of space, uh, But then they go send you off to do uh, dental training. Uh, emergency medical technician training. Um, some days I'm the plumber. If the toilet's broken on space station, I have to fix that. There's nobody else to, to put their hands on the valves. And, and uh, you know, it's really an incredibly complex closed loop water recycling system. So it's, it's non-trivial when it breaks. Uh, so we do everything from take care of the health of our fellow crew members, Uh, To fixing any equipment that may have malfunctioned uh, to to training for spacewalks. So I did two spacewalks on my last mission. Uh, We'll have a few more coming up this next one. And then uh, we work a lot with uh, things like robotics. Um, We can launch small satellites out of the airlock on ISS. So it really depends uh, what complement of work we do. Uh, the majority of it's science and then the rest of it's taking care of the station and taking care of the crew members.
1: That's that's excellent. Some of the most glamorous kind of admin tasks in the world. Uh,
0: Absolutely. <laughs> really yeah yeah.
1: Okay so I have one more kind of space-based question before we we get onto the science of the whole thing. Um, obviously you go up with the Russians on Soyuz um, mm-hmm. Of course, I guess the big news in, in space transport at the moment is that the U.S. has kind of regained your capability to self-launch via the, the privateers via SpaceX. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And, and will that kind of in time stop your relationship with the Russians?
0: Yeah, I don't think anything's going to stop our relationship with the Russians because it's a joint international space station. So uh, we're always going to work together. Um, modules are connected. Uh, we we uh, transfer power back and forth. Um, we work each uh, segment of the space station has to work together, for example, for an orbital reboost. And so we are always going to work incredibly closely together with all of our international partners. Uh, in terms of launching, it's actually really great to have multiple capabilities to launch to the space station. So we're incredibly excited to see uh, the first operational flight of commercial crew. Uh, it's going to be just totally exciting to welcome those guys onto the space station and see them come through the hatch for the first time. It's definitely a really big deal for NASA to have this be fully operational and uh, to be a way that we can launch astronauts from the US again.
1: In your last, in your 2016 mission, you, you helped capture the Dragon uh, space capsule when it was just carrying supplies, is that right?
0: Yeah, so uh, we've had cargo vehicles uh, that have come up for a long time, and so uh, we used to grapple those with the robotic arm. Now they have the ability to to fly in and actually dock to the space station. Uh, and so uh, the other one of the other things that we did out on the on one of the spacewalks is install the docking adapter, which is the hatch, the port that the the new folks will come through. And so that's kind of cool to have installed that and then see that. Uh, be put in use uh, to actually welcome these guys on board.
1: Yeah, yeah, you literally laid laid the groundwork for it all to happen. Then, in some way, that's we were I mean.
0: just hoping we connected all the cables right.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would have been that would have been an awkward conversation. If was, <laughs> well done, on behalf of the astronauts. Well done. <laughs> Um, right, you know what? We should move on to the science. I could talk to you about the space aspect of it all day, but we should move on to the science. So uh, obviously there's going to be lots of experiments that you have a, a hand in while you're up there, but one of the main ones is working on the cold atom lab. So so tell us about what's trying to be achieved there.
0: Yeah, so that, this is a really cool experiment. And I'm a biologist, so I get a little out of my depths when I'm talking particle physics, but um, this is essentially an ion trap and we have these in the ground. Uh, people have been using them for a long time uh, to look at Um, uh, Bose-Einstein condensates. And and essentially what happens on the ground is you have this very short time of flight. And so what you get in microgravity, uh, because you don't have uh, gravitational forces, you can get this really long time of flight. So it just lets you run the instrument longer. Um, So there's there's a lot of really interesting things that scientists can learn about this data, Um, but it's just taking your ability to do uh, a certain type of exposure with an experiment on the ground uh, and then and this hugely expand the capabilities of that laboratory just by putting it in microgravity, not having it subject to gravitational forces.
1: I see, oh, that's interesting. It's something obviously unique about the environment in which the ISS operates that is useful for the people that are studying this.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah,
1: okay, that makes sense. And now some of the other work you're doing is with cardiomyocytes, is that right? And that's following on from work you've done before?
0: Yeah, so the the uh, work that we did in the 2016 flight was actually just looking at could we grow uh, cardiomyocytes on board ISS and these were induced pluripotent stem cells uh, that were induced to be cardiomyocytes and we really hadn't done very long duration culture uh, aboard the space station. Uh, There's been some experiments on shuttle, but shuttle didn't have a mission duration of much more than 17 days. And so we wanted to see how long could we grow these cells, could we grow them for 30 days, and then could we return them safely to Earth and let scientists continue to work on the the cells once they'd been returned. So part of it was proof of principle, could we launch cells keep them alive, not contaminate them, and get, back to the, get them back to the earth. And then some of the, the scientific questions we were asking were uh, differences due to microgravity. Um, so these cardiomyocytes actually beat, and you can measure this. We took video recordings, uh, and then, of course, they looked at uh, time points during the, the time course when they were on board, and we took uh, gene expression profiles of these cells. Uh, and then we we sent them back uh, to Earth, which is actually pretty cool. They land off the coast of California and got driven up to Stanford. So imagine getting that in your lab. <laughs> Here's a <laughs> plate of cells from space. <laughs> That's fantastic. So it
1: wasn't just data that was being done. You actually, the physical specimens were sent back down as well. We
0: sent them back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I've done a lot of cell culture in my life, but I have to say, every time <laughs> I changed the media on these cells, I was like, boy, don't contaminate these, Kate. You know, this is yeah. this is a pretty expensive experiment. <laughs>
1: so so that that last bit about the effects of microgravity and and the various things that that might change uh, presumably some of the things you might learn there you could apply to elongated spaceflight as well
0: yeah absolutely i mean all of the systems that we're studying are are usually human systems or animal models um nasa really is interested what happens when we uh, extend our we've gone up to a year with scott kelly uh, what happens when we push past that? What are we talking about for a, a two and a half, three year Mars mission? And uh, really how can we understand the medical effects on the human body and how can we learn to operate safely in space? And so cardiovascular is a great system to study. It it has profound uh, impacts when you go into microgravity. So walking around on, on the earth uh, your, you know, your heart's pumping blood, but then the force of gravity always pulls uh, the blood down into your legs. And so once you get on board the space station, you don't have that pull of the of blood and fluid into your legs. So a couple things happen. Um, you get rid of a lot of fluid, your body thinks, oh, well, I'm, I'm totally overhydrated, and it gets rid of it. And you get into a, a new homeostasis. Um, but there are strains in the cardiovascular system. Uh, we certainly know that there's there's vascular issues long term. Uh, there's a really interesting paper published recently that was a case study um, that's looking at uh, some reverse flow uh, in the jugular and so I think the answer is we don't completely know what's going on with the cardiovascular system there's a lot to study still Uh, and so certainly uh, looking at cells is a great place to start and then we volunteer as human research subjects so I'll I'll be participating in a number of of studies as the subject as well as the investigator
1: yeah, I suppose in some in some senses, uniquely, this is a, a an academic exercise to find out more about the biology, but you yourself, presumably suffer some of these consequences as well.
0: <laughs> yes. So it's, all, you know, it's all informed consent, uh, but I try to volunteer for as many studies as possible. We just don't have that many humans that have ever been to space and we have even fewer that have been for long duration. And so uh, giving yeah. scientists the opportunity to, to study this, I think, is really valuable.
1: I think it's Artemis, isn't it? The long-term NASA program to to the moon and beyond, I'm, I'm sure, you know, yes. there's, there's sites on Mars. So this, this kind of information is presumably going to feed towards information to make those missions successful.
0: It will. And it also has a lot of uh, influence on, on our understanding of human disease back on Earth. So a lot of things that happen in space, for example, mimic aging. Uh, We don't know the complete extent at a molecular level, if it's the exact same processes or not, Uh, but many of the things that we're participating in now are to look at things like um, arterial stiffness and hardening, um, plasticity, uh, what happens to your telomeres uh, when you're in space for a long time, uh, DNA damage, radiation-induced damage or environmental damage, uh, effects on your sleep cycle and your circadian rhythm, there's immune disturbances, uh, and there's bone loss. So you do start, you know, I'm painting the picture of an 80-year-old here. <laughs> so we yeah, have got like a healthy 40, 40-year-old population, uh, but we can kind of rapidly accelerate some phenotypes that look like the aging process.
1: Two, three, four. Back in 2016, when you sequenced the DNA in space, uh, that, was, that was a first. So, so tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so that was also a proof of principle experiment. Uh, We wanted to see if it was gonna work. Um, There's a lot of things, you know, sequencing involves fluidics and anytime you have fluidics in space, it behaves differently in your instrumentation. Uh, Capillary effects are very, very strong. Surface tension takes over. You can never, for example, if you have an Eppendorf tube, uh, a test tube of liquid, it doesn't necessarily stay at the bottom. It will be on the wall or stuck to the lid of the tube um, but you can't predict things based on where they would settle in a gravitational environment and then we have air bubbles. Uh, those go everywhere. <laughs> they turn into microbubbles, uh, And they won't, you know, you don't have any of this separation of the air liquid interface like you would eventually on on earth. And so we didn't know if this was going to work. Um, so we used a, a nanopore sequencing device. This was very small. Uh, it's rugged. It, it uh, has low power consumption. So these are the kind of things we look for in a space instrument or a remote instrument. And uh, because it's really a lot of microfluidics, uh, some of the more difficult parts of larger scale fluidics didn't seem to be as much of a problem. But we went into it, we just didn't know if it was gonna work. So we sent up a a couple different libraries. Um, We sent up an E. coli, a mouse and a human mixed together and we wanted to see like A, could we even get the sequencing action to work? <laughs> it's kind of like your, your first day of your graduate project. Is this? Can I put these things together and get something out the end? Uh, and then we also wanted to see, you know, hey, can we deconvolute the data? Is there any skew in the data? Uh, so we prepared samples identically on earth, and they actually followed my experiment on the ground 24 hours later and replicated as much as they could even down to like the lab temperature and uh, you know, all of the exact volumes that I used. And so we had this matched set of sequencing samples and it turned out it, it worked great. Uh, we were able to do the sequencing very well. It turned out some of our sequencing reads were better uh, from the space instrument. We still haven't completely figured out why. And so it's, it's useful, it's available to us as a tool. So I've got a sequencer on board um, and we've got a whole bunch of swabs and I'm going to go crazy sampling the microbiome on the space station. Uh, this is my plan for the next six months or so.
1: Right, and, and of course, there's some academic interest there. But actually, it's, as you say, it's a tool for you to use going forward now.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's really two things. One is, uh, you know, can you take this technology? This is the kind of thing that when I was working in field research in central Congo, uh, studying virus outbreaks, this is the kind of thing you want to have in your pocket. Same thing. It's rugged portable um, instrument stands up to pretty harsh conditions. So if it can launch with the vibration loads of space, it can handle the back of a a Land Rover on a Congo dirt road. And so part of it's kind of pushing the boundaries of what we can do in remote medicine and in field sampling sites on earth. And then part of it is also now that we have the tools sequencing is just a great tool. So with that, you can interrogate uh, the environmental microbiome, the human microbiome, I'm really interested in how the microbiome changes over time, for example, when we get new crew members on station. So I'm excited to welcome these guys to the hatch because they're my very dear friends, but I'm also really interested in what microbes they might be bringing with them. (laughs) So we'll plan to sample before and after they arrive uh, pretty heavily. And uh, just kind of trying to understand like our water system up there. It's a closed loop system. We have greater than 90% water recycling and we've been doing it for years. So... The coffee that I drank in 2016, it got returned to the system and it's still up there uh, for the most part. Almost all those water molecules are there. Uh, to me, that seems like an interesting place to be looking at the microbiome. Um, all of these closed air and water loops on station. It's a, it's a completely separate uh, atmosphere from the earth and it's been up there for 20 years. So we'll, we'll celebrate the 20 year anniversary when i'm up there it's it's its own biome and i'm i think it's really going to be cool to explore microbiologically nice to be in
1: orbit that was the brilliant kate rubins and of course she's quite right what better way to celebrate 20 years of the space station than to sample its microbiome right that's it for this episode thanks so much for listening and i'll speak to you next time <laughs>